said earlier. And um, I don't know about you guys, but the book of 1 Thessalonians has been such a, such a blessing to me. And as I say, I pray it has been to you. And you sometimes when you, um, you accompany a blessing, you think, well, something's been added. Actually, the Word of God is really done in my heart with this book. It's amazing, isn't it? It's actually exposed me in some areas of my own life. This is really interesting that you can read the Word of God and read the Word of God and read the Word of God and, and, and read over something. We said a little bit in Bible study this morning. And, and, and really not have it affect you too much. And then you can sit and read another text and, boy, the Lord just, He just lays it on you. Amen. I mean, it's just amazing how that he reveals those hidden things down in the heart. Isn't it amazing that you can have something down in your heart and you don't even know it's there until the word of God comes along and wakes it up. Amen. And this is really what the book of 1 Thessalonians has certainly done for me. And, you know, last Lord's Day morning, the Holy Ghost, he laid his hand on so many elements of our Christian lives. That, that, that's really the point. I mean, I think it's just so amazing to hear the Word of God and then have the Holy Ghost as He lays His hand on these elements in our lives. It's, and they're so practical. I mean, this is, this is the thing that has really been brought to light in my own life. So I thought by way of remembrance, by way of reminder, I would just rehearse a few things that the Holy Ghost touched on last week, just as we lay the groundwork. Because... You remember, brethren, that last week he and, and the week before that, he's been really laying out the relationship between men, man to man, woman to woman, human to human, if you will, how we are to react, how we are to behave amongst ourselves. It's really a it's been a horizontal thing, amen. And again, this is where the Spirit of God exposed me in some things that I should indeed be doing to my fellow brethren, amen. It's a quite an amazing thing. But Paul, as you remember last week, besought the Thessalonians to know and to, if you will, uh, love those who are placed over them in the Lord, those who labor in the word of God. He counseled the Thessalonians, the brethren there, if you will, to walk in ways that are pleasing to God. And again, brethren, this is what separates us. This is what makes us different from the world when we're out in the world and we're walking around out there. We are seeking God and seeking ways which we can walk that please Him. And this is what Paul was definitely exhorting the brethren to do, to live holy and godly lives when we're outside here, outside of this place in the world. He really counseled them to live quiet lives, to attend to one's own business. You know, often we're so worried about being in everybody else's business, we, Paul says, just mind your own business. Don't, don't be a busybody. And that's certainly an important thing to do. That's for sure. He said we are to work and labor with our own hands so that we don't bring, we don't besmirch the Lord Jesus Christ, his name. Remember, Paul had been preaching about the second coming of Christ. And so in light of all that, they were stopping working. <laughs> they were stopping to do these things. And Paul said, no, you're, you're going you're to bring reproach upon the name of Christ. You work till Jesus comes. Amen. And this is precisely what we should do. 
this is a thing, brother. And I use that example of a IFP, IFB church I was in, and the, the pastor got up and thought he was going to be a smart aleck. Said, hey, I got an idea. Let's just charge up all of our credit cards and leave it to the devil. I mean, that's just an unholy and ungodly thing. It's just a ridiculous thing. No, actually, how about if we're Bible believers, we just do what the Bible says, as it commands us to work with our own hands. How's that? How's that sound? Just to be holy in that way. He exhorted them to keep good order amongst themselves by warning the unruly. We saw that last week. And brethren, this is one that really got me last week. And yes, he exhorted us to be our brother's keeper. Yep. yep. Yes, brethren, we are to do that. We are to be our brother's keeper. Paul commanded them, and commended them, I should say, for showing a Christ-like love not only to one another, but also to those who are on the outside, the unbelievers. He, he commanded them to you know, show this kind of love, if you will, even, even unto them. And he said, that you may have peace amongst yourselves. And again, we've looked at that on several occasions. So really, as I said up to this point in the text, we have seen the Holy Ghost. He's given us a blueprint on how to exercise. Amen. A godly relationship amongst ourselves. Again, as I said, horizontally. Man to man. Woman to woman. Brother to brother. Sister to sister. This morning, however, in our text, which is really quite amazing, he turns our religious affections to those relationships between one another to a relationship and how we as believers interact with him. So in other words, it goes from a horizontal thing. This is how you live out horizontally to... A, a, a vertical thing. It is man and God. It is woman and God. It is human and God. It is indeed believer and God. How do we respond? How do we uh, act towards God? Again, the horizontal thing then is brought to the forefront as we look here this morning at the vertical thing between God and man. How do we, if you will, react to God? And really, what it does is it shows us and teaches us how we worship God, how we behave towards God. And brethren, listen to me. This is important. Again, this, I got exposed again. How much we trust God. How much do we actually trust and believe God? And what we're going to see here this morning is that this, again, is an exercise that, that must be built up. As I said last week or the week before, this stuff doesn't happen by osmosis. It happens by God stretching us out there and exercising and working these things out. Well, my son Elijah's here this morning, so I could actually use that example. You know, you don't, you know, you don't get to look like me and then like him by osmosis. It's obvious to tell that he works out. I don't. I work out cheeseburgers. I like those. But this is a reality, brethren, for Christians. This is what this letter really is teaching us in exposing sometimes in our own hearts those things that we don't even realize are there. Now, as we get into our text this morning, Spurgeon said concerning 16, 17, and 18, listen, here follows a string of Christian precepts, a golden chain, if you will. And I added this. Not that I'm adding anything to what Spurgeon said, but as I think with my brain, I'm sitting there. Yes, it's a beautiful golden chain. Now listen, brethren. 
As we look at these three verses this morning, there was only three, right? We only have three up there. People are going, three? How's this guy? No, no, it's going to take us a while, brethren. Verse 16, brethren, is intimately chained to verse 17. Verse 17 is intimately chained to verse 18. Which then, when they are exercised together, and again, I've been using that word a lot. When they are exercised together, brethren, it produces in you and I a golden chain of true biblical worship and behavior and trust towards God. And again, brethren, just to be exposed in this is a quite stunning thing. And yet, as we're exposed, we grow. Amen? God exposes us, and then he, he, he helps us to grow in these areas in our lives. And ultimately, that's what the Word of God does. It should cause us to grow in these areas. As I wrestled with this text, again, you think in your mind, I, if only Paul had written that I should rejoice a lot, that's a pretty good description of me, rejoicing a lot. But you notice that's not what he wrote. <laughs> it's not what he said. If only Paul had written in our text, that I should indeed uh, pray often. That would be a good description of me, to pray often, but if you notice, that's not what he said. He said to pray, what? Without ceasing. It's an amazing thing. So see, you see the tension here. You look at the text and you go, wait a minute, is that a picture of me? Or is this some areas that I need to grow in, that the Lord needs to bring me along in? Amen? And this is the thing, right? There's many commands in the scripture that we just cannot do. Without the grace of God and without the Holy Spirit of God working, and these are certainly some of them because, again, it's a vertical thing. It's man responding to God in such a way. It's quite a stunning thing. In fact, I thought, too, also, if he would have written, you know, be thankful in some things. Again, that's, that's a good description of me. Because, brethren, honestly, I'm thankful in some things. The question isn't whether I'm thankful in some things, but am I thankful in everything? Do you see this? Again, this goes to our worship of God. It goes to how much we trust Him, how much we believe that God is sovereign. We say that. But then, brethren, in our lives, when we live it out, then do we actually believe it and trust it? Ultimately, in the end, this is what this verse, these verses have done to me. They bring things to light that are so amazing. So we look there at verse number 16 this morning. Let us read that together this morning. Look at verse number 16. Paul writes to the brethren and to us, Rejoice evermore. Paul begins, as I said earlier, with this golden chain of worship by entreating the brethren to rejoice evermore. Now that... That phrase, rejoice evermore, is important. It literally means to have a praise in our hearts towards God at all times, on every occasion, in every circumstance. Can I say that again? That we should have a praise towards God, trusting Him, believing Him, in every circumstances, on every occasion, and in everything. Now, that's certainly easier said than done, isn't it, brethren? But again, you see how this exposes us. Whether we really are trusting in Him. We, 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 we do these things, we rejoice when good things happen, but what about when those, those tragic things come? Again, you see how this can expose you, whether we really trust Christ. 
Now, brother, let me just say this. Biblical rejoicing evermore is found in who God is. And ultimately, this is where we're going to end up. Who God is. Who is he? If we can rejoice in the joyous times and in the good things, then a God who loves us perfectly and has ordained every day for us, we should rejoice then too, shouldn't we, brother? And when something tragic comes or appears to be tragic, we should rejoice in him. Again, easier said than done. And this is what I'm talking about. It's an amazing thing, brother, when you consider this. When you understand this word, Rejoice evermore. The tension arises because, brethren, I think many times what we do, and, and can I just say, as Western Christians, now you take this verse over where Dean is at this morning, and you take this verse down to Tel Aviv, and you, you take this verse you know, to any country that hates Christians, and they'll live this out, and they'll explain this to you, what this really means. But we see this tension because many times we associate rejoicing with the absence of sorrow. We, we, associate, we associate this rejoicing with the absence of sorrows. And brethren, there's a paradox all through the pages of Scripture. And again, these are the things that we must learn. We must have the Holy Ghost sink it deep down into us because there isn't a contradiction with those two terms. Rejoicing and sorrow. Two different things. Two completely different things, and yet we see this. In fact, when we consider this, rejoicing and sorrow existing, coexisting together, our religious affections are drawn to the reality that verse 16, did you know that verse 16 is really the shortest verse in the Bible? In the Greek, it is the shortest verse in the Bible. Anybody know what everybody thinks is the shortest verse in the Bible? Well, excuse me, so you can say it. Jesus wept. So here you have two of the shortest verses in Scripture, both, both consisting of sorrow and both one of rejoicing. And so we see those two paradoxes working together. And so as a Christian, we must, again, define what does this mean? Is my rejoicing based on whether I'm sad or not? And believe me, it affects you. Look, I'm not saying that. The Bible never says we're, says we're not supposed to have sorrow, because we do. But when it's based upon sovereign God, when it's founded in him, then the Christian should be able to rejoice even in there. Sorrow. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to see the Apostle Paul here again as he's teaching us this morning. Again, we see this paradox. We see sorrow and rejoicing in the same verse. It's really quite a stunning thing when you consider this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at verse number, uh, yeah, chapter 6. Look at verse number 4. Paul writes, he says, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, we, well, we talked about that last week, didn't we? In afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long suffering, there's that word we looked at, long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned. 
by the word of truth, by the power of God, there it is again, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Listen to what he's saying. By honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet as well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed. Look at verse 10. As what? Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Do you see that paradox there? Paul's describing these are the things that are going on in my life, the circumstances, the jailings, the beatings, all of this stuff. And he, he gives us this paradox. He says, we're sorrowful, but yet we're always rejoicing. Because again, his rejoicing is not based upon the circumstances he just laid out. It's based upon about who God is and who he believed God to be. And that's really important, brethren, again, because when hard times come, again, we have not been promised anything. We have not been promised we're not going to have sorrow in hard times. We, in fact, we are going to have it. It's just a matter, can I look then at the Father? Can I look at God and go, no matter what, I'm going to rejoice. I might be sad and sorrowful, but I'm going to trust Him because He knows what's best for me. Amen. Do you see this? Do you see how this takes the human element and really challenges it? Because we are so used to doing things, as we say in America, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. What a joke. If I did that, I'd end up on the floor. I mean, I wouldn't be able to get up. It's quite amazing when you consider this. The Lord never said we weren't going to have sorrows, brother, and sadness and trouble, because we do. The question is, as I said, do we really trust the Lord through them? So let me come alongside you this morning, and, and, and I want to just give you some real practical Bible-believing verses so that we can, again, as we look at this, as we move towards being able to practice and exercise this, that we have the Word of God to lean upon, that we have the Word of God to direct us in these things, and that we understand where the true power lies. Because as I always say, in my flesh, I will run. I will try to escape. It is by the power of God that one stands. One would stand and one would practice and exercise these things. Your flesh, you won't do it. You won't do it. Look at Nehemiah chapter 8. Look there in your Bibles if you would. I want you to see this. Let me just give you a few practical and sound Bible verses to help you when you begin to feel yourself wane. When you begin to feel yourself wince back just a little bit. Look at Nehemiah chapter 8. And again, we're going to look at you know, this common thread in the Old Testament and in the New. And again, this is not an easy exercise. This is not an easy thing to do. This is something that is gained and produced by the Holy Spirit of God. It is a supernatural thing for a man or a woman to stand in the face of the, some of the things that we hear about. Voice of the Martyrs, Levi's running around yesterday, he's got the Voice of the Martyrs magazine that we get. Stunning what goes on, brethren. You have no idea, no idea what they do to these Christians. And there they are, standing firm, believing and trusting and knowing that the Father has them in his hand. Now, what's happened here in, in the book of Nehemiah, obviously, is that the word of God was lost. That's always a problem. 
<laughs> That's always a problem. When the word of God gets lost, we are all in trouble. Okay? That's just the reality. <laughs> because you will start to do things on your own. You will indeed, as the proverb, the book of Solomon said, right? And there are, you know, there are many things, right? That lean not on your own understanding. Right? You will start leaning on your own. This is what's happening. And, and, and the, the shock of it, they find the word of God and they begin to read it. And they realize how far away they have moved. And it's just a shock to the, it's a shock to the system. Because it's, they've been away from it for so long. And so we see here in the book of Nehemiah, listen to what Nehemiah tells the Israelites, the people of God. Look there, if you would, at verse number 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, look at verse number 8. So they read the book in the law of God distinctly. So in other words, what he was doing there is that they were explaining we found the word of God, let me explain it to you, kind of like we try and do here. We try and explain the word of God. What does it mean? And gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is the Tisha, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites, and that taught the people and said unto the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Do you see what it did to them? It, they realized... Man, I, I, it's, it's like Dean, you know, uses that illustration all the time, right? You know, we, we're here when we start, and we move away. And then we realize, oh, we've moved away from the, from, from the Word of God, and we come back, but we don't come back as far as we should. And then we move again, and then and pretty soon, oop, it's here. And by the time it's done, you've moved completely away from the Word of God. This is what's happened to them. They're weeping because, wow, I mean, we've gone so far. Look what it says. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry. Listen, for the joy of the Lord is your what? Is your strength. And again, brethren, it's all about who you believe God is. It's all about this. It's all about what a loving God allows something to happen to me that he doesn't do for my good. Nehemiah just says, here we are. Your strength is the joy of the Lord. That's the word rejoicing. That's what is used. He is the strength. He's our power. He is our strength. Not ourselves. Look at Psalms chapter 16. Just a couple of them here this morning. Look at Psalms chapter 16. The joy of the Lord is our strength. He is the one. He's the one that we must consider as we're praying in our, well, can I use the term, closets? When we're praying in our private time when nobody else is around, he's the one that we must contend with. He's the one that we must say to him, yes, Lord, I see this, and I see this, and I'm praying about this, and I'm praying about my children. But, oh, Lord, may your will be done. I trust in what you are doing, not my own thoughts and understanding. I, I've learned this very well. Uh, when you try and mate people up, <laughs> and, and what do I mean by that? When you try and bring someone you think should be together, a young man or a young woman, and you, you bring them together and you try and force the issue, brethren, it does not work. You just go like this, Lord, if it is your will, amen, then, then this, is, this is what it will be. But you get back out of the way and you realize that he knows what's best always. You just stand back and let the Lord work. God's abiding present, brethren. 
should bring us fullness of rejoicing, his presence. Who he is, his presence. And I don't mean in a weird New Age way. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit of God. He, he who lives inside of you, his presence should be our rejoicing. And again, please, old Pastor Mike is working on this. Let me just say this. I'm asking the Spirit of God to apply this to me. Because, brethren, I don't always react as I should. I don't. Look at Psalm 16. Look there, if you would, what it says. The presence of God, again, in a biblical way. Psalms chapter 16. Look at verse number 8. Look there, if you would. I have, well, this is, of course, Messianic David writing. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad. My glory, what? Rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Listen, verse 11. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is the fullness of what? Joy. Again, we have God, the person, the man. Amen. His, who he is, decides and dictates to us in a large degree how we react, how we respond. Now we have his presence here, brethren, which should dictate and help us to respond to him and worship him in a true biblical way. Easier said than done, though, as I said. John chapter 16, I'll just give you the verse, verses 20 through 24. One of the things that Jesus is saying there is that he's saying that you, you haven't asked anything of me, but well, now when you pray, I will give you, according to the Father's will, what you ask for to make your joy full. Your rejoicing is full because God answers your prayers according to his goodness, according to how he sees fit, according to his goodness. But brethren, really, do we then submit to that? That's the question, isn't it, brethren? Again, this is something that is near and dear to my own heart because I... I wrestle so much with it. I really do. And I want to grow in this. I want to, when something takes place, I want to look and say, yes, Lord, amen. You have indeed done what's right. May I submit to that. May I, as Paul's, we're going to see here in some actual worded prayers, may I bend my knee and bow my head to him and trust him fully. And what's happening. Look at 1 Peter, just another one here, and then we'll, we'll finish this up. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Again, this is to encourage us, brethren, to know that the Bible is full of these things to encourage us, to help to train us, to help to exercise us in the Holy Ghost, to help us to trust no matter what we see in Him, no matter what we see, hear, or experience. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and fadeth not away, amen, reserved in heaven for you. We just sang that song. What a glorious assurance, brethren. All these words are used to give us a glorious assurance of the Father himself and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what he says. Look at verse 5. Who are kept by the power of Mike, kept by the power of Howard, kept by the power of Jeer, 
Kept by the power of Wendy? No, kept by the power of God. Do you see again? This is who he is. This is what we must, uh, if you will, exercise our faith concerning who he is. Look what it says there. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice. Now, brethren, let me ask you this. Was Peter writing to Christians who were filled with sorrow? Yes, he was. Persecution, death is on every chapter of this book. Sorrow was there present. And yet, what is, Paul, what is Peter telling them to do? To rejoice in the assurance of the Lord Jesus Christ. That there's a place, even if they lop your head off, there's a place you're going to go that is kept for you. Again, this is the thing. This is the whole trying of it all. Look at verse, as we finish that out. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, you see this, being exercised, being more, much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8. Whom having not seen, ye love. In whom though ye now see him not, yet believing, ye what? Rejoice with joy unspeakable. Again, brethren, the idea here is sorrow and persecution, and yet there's this rejoicing, these paradoxes that run together again. So in other words, what we're seeing, brethren, in the text is that our circumstances should not dictate whether we rejoice and trust in what God is doing ever. Although, unfortunately, for me, and maybe for you, maybe it's just me, sometimes it does that to me. I'm not constantly rejoicing in some bad things that happen. And yet... We must come to the realization that, again, the Father is ultimately sovereign and in control. Rejoicing evermore is a mark of one who has been born again from above and a growing exercise of praise in their hearts towards God. This is the idea, a growing exercise, something that we grow in at all times, on every occasion, in every circumstance, even though the paradox of sorrow is present. So again, brethren, this is important for us to grasp and get a hold of. We don't hate God because something bad happens. We don't hate God because this doesn't happen or that doesn't happen. Praise, I mean, I pray the Lord will change our hearts if that's how we think. It is a growing thing, brother. And again, I am growing in it as well. Look at the second thing he says there back in 1 Thessalonians. Not only are we to re rejoice evermore, and as I said, this is a golden chain which produce things inside of us. They're designed to do that. They are connected together. One connects to the other, which connects to the other. It's a stunning thing, really, when you consider that. Look at verse number 17. Pray without ceasing. We can quote that one. Pray without ceasing. Well, as I said, pray without ceasing is intimately chained together with rejoicing evermore. When one prays without ceasing to our sovereign God, the result is a heart set free. Brethren, please, it should be. A heart that is set free, if you will, of our burdens and troubles, allowing us then to rejoice within them. Do you see here how they're connected together? When we are praying to sovereign God, again, over and over again, without ceasing, and let us define what that means. The phrase without ceasing refers to a person who has an intermittent cough. <laughs> you, ever, you ever had one of those? 
<laughs> I mean, you guys, we could all relate to this thing, right? I mean, this is what it means. I mean, Paul's not telling us to you know, walk around like this all the time in front of people. It is indeed a reference to someone who has an intermittent cough. What do we, what do we mean by that? Well, you don't cough all the time when you have an intermittent cough. However, there is a tickle that is constantly in the back of the throat, brethren, which can expel a cough at any time. This is the idea here. This is what Paul is saying to them, that we should be, as Christians, looking at sovereign God and saying, at any moment, in any circumstance, in any occasion, I should be able to instantly pray and ask God, God, Father, please help me. Please help my child. Please help whatever it might be. This is the idea here. Walking along, <coughs> coughing, walking along, coughing. <coughs> the idea is one who is born again from above, who indeed does indeed at any moment pray and call on the Lord his God. It's a stunning thing when you consider this, brethren. It really, really is. Now, I want to remind us, <laughs> this is really it was such a glorious time, wasn't it, when we went through the 222 actual worded prayers in Scripture. That wasn't too long ago. We actually looked at the Bible and we said, wow, there's 176 actual worded prayers in the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament, and 76 in the New. So we looked at that and we just simply read them. It's amazing. You know, when the prayer's in the Bible, you can't pray wrong. Do you realize that? When you look at Scripture, you go, I'm going to just pray this prayer because it's in Scripture, and it, has, it must be right. 222 of them we, we looked at and we read through. It's quite an amazing thing. In fact, I want us to turn together for just a moment because, again, we're all at different places. Amen? I remember the first time I was asked to pray publicly. Anybody remember, anybody remember that? It was one of the most fearful things that I think has ever been hoisted upon my wife. I mean, I was shaken. First time I ever led the Lord's table, I was like, man, I was just, I couldn't speak hardly. You know, cotton mouth, you get all these things, amen? And so some of us are maybe in a place, we don't even know how to pray. Well, see, this is the glorious thing about Scripture, is that we have a great and glorious example Again, we have 222. You can probably go back. I think they were all recorded. I think you can go back. I listed them all. You can go to Scripture. You'll spend months, years, reading and praying these, these prayers in Scripture. Not as voodoo, like we always say. Not that way, but you look at them and you see. And gloriously, when the apostles were with Jesus Christ, there was many questions they asked him. And you want to know one of the central questions they asked him? Lord... Will you teach us how to pray? So I want to go there. I want you to turn your Bibles to Luke this morning. I want us to see again this glorious example of an actual worded prayer. And then we know this. Again, brethren, if you pray the prayers in the Bible, you know what they're going to be? They're going to be God-centric. You know what I mean by that? It means that our prayers are going to be pointed towards the will of God, towards what God wants in our lives, not what I want. Because sometimes when I pray, I do. okay, it's just me. I'm going to say it again. Sometimes I find myself very selfish in my prayers. Does that happen to you? Or maybe it's just me. But when we're doing this kind of thing, when Jesus himself, when the disciples came to him and said, you know, hey, we want you to teach us how to make an extra buck. 
hey, we wanted you to teach us how to make some gold dust fall out of the ceiling, and we want you to teach us how to, you know, make a gold tooth appear in someone's mouth. None of that. They were concerned with, Lord, how do we pray? And we see this here very carefully. Look at Luke chapter 11 again. I want you to see the God-centeredness of this prayer. And again, you go look in Scripture over and over again. When they prayed, it was all about trusting in sovereign God and what he was doing. His will, his thoughts, his understanding. And again, look at Luke chapter 11. We're just going to read these verses together. Look at verse number 1. Look there. And it came to pass that he, was, that he was praying at a certain place. When he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, when ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven. Now again, brother, look what it says there. Hallowed be thy name. Now again, as we look at this text together, the first thing we notice is that God's name is to be honored and glorified when we pray. Hallowed be thy name. It is to be lifted on high. It is to be prayed upon in such an honor and such a glorious way. That's the first thing. That's the foundation. Who is God? God is to be hallowed. His name is to be lifted and honored amongst all things. But not only that, we lay that foundation. Who is God? The next thing we see there in verse number two, just look there quickly. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as in heaven, as so in earth. And again, brethren, it's not about my will. It's not about your will. It's about who? It's about the Father's will. When we understand this, things that come our way that are sifted through His glorious loving hands, we will indeed say, yes, Father, it is your will. You see this. Our prayers have to be centered on God's will. Look at number three. Look at your utter dependence upon him. Give us day by day our daily bread. God is our provider. What do we always say, children, when we're praying? We always say, thank you, Father, for giving us this food. Thank you, Father, for allowing me to have a bologna sandwich today. Right, guys? You remember the, the, the pilgrims when they came? You remember what happened to them? Just the glorious, all the things, all that God did when he was working through it. Boy, I wish I had time. We don't have time this morning to get into that. But the first Thanksgiving is a stunning thing, brethren. The first year they were there, they had very little. Brother Pat, you guys will be able to relate to this. They had very little. In fact, that first winter, each of them got five kernels of corn to eat. That was it. The next year, the Lord blessed them greatly. And you know what they did? Each of the plate, as it was there, had five kernels placed on their plate. And you know what they did? They thanked God for five kernels of corn. We are to thank God. It's God-centric. He's the one who gives you the food. Not me, not you. He gave you your job. He gives you everything. Now, brothers, that changes. It changes your attitude when you realize our utter dependence upon him, period, when you, when you get a hold of this. And then when things come, it isn't that it doesn't matter. It's that you are trusting in a sovereign God. Stunningly. Fourth, look at the fourth thing there quickly. Ooh, this is an important one. 
And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Again, brethren, this is the most incredible part of the prayer. Amen? Our prayers would be centered on God's abiding forgiveness. Do you understand this? You know why our prayers would be centered on God's abiding forgiveness? Because then you and I can forgive others. There's that horizontal thing. Really, this is what it teaches. I mean, it's God-centric. It's what God is doing. It's what God, as we pray, these are the kinds of things that we want to have in our hearts, in our minds. Look at the fifth thing there in verse 4. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And again, brethren, what do we see from that when we're praying? Jesus himself is teaching this. See, many people say this is the Lord's Prayer. No, no, it's not. It's our prayer. The Lord's Prayer is in John 17. This is our prayer. Jesus never prays for him to be forgiven because he's sinless. Perfect. He's telling us. He's showing us how to pray. He's saying to us, these are the things that should be incorporated. Our prayers are centered on God's deliverance of his people, a past, present, and future deliverance. Do you see that there again? God-centric, all of it. This is the idea. Now look, <clears throat> I want to I read one more prayer for us together. The idea here again is that Paul says that we in our communication, our vertical communication with God, we're to pray without ceasing. We're to pray as one has an intermittent cough. Constantly, consistently, at any moment of time. Stunning thing. Look what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 3. This is, I think this is Howard's. Isn't this your favorite one? This is Howard's favorite prayer, Ephesians chapter 3. Look there if you would. I just want to, again, show us and have us see how God-centric these prayers really are. Ephesians chapter 3. Again, this is the second prayer in the book of Ephesians. There's one before this, but look at here at the second one, an actual worded prayer. No need to make it up. Look what it says here, brethren, in verse number 14. Ephesians chapter 3, look at verse number 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now listen, what is he going to ask them, the Father, to do? Brethren, this is something all of us need. All of us. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might, that's what? With his power. That, that the Christian might be strengthened with the power of God. Because that's what we need. Listen, second thing. You know, you've, you've heard the who, what, where, and why. This is it. By his spirit. That's the who. Father God, please grant by the power of your spirit that I might indeed exercise these graces. Look at the next thing, where? Who, what, where? In the inner man, here. The inner man, the heart, the, in, the inside of you. That's what he's praying for them for, and that's what we should pray for one another. Now look at there, look, here's the why. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, and that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend all with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with the fullness of God. Look at verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or imagine. Amazing, isn't it? According to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. What a glorious prayer that we would pray for one another. What a glorious thing. This is what Paul is saying. 
So when I'm praying for you, and many of you go, oh, do you pray by name? Yes, I do. And I'm not bragging. I'm not. I'm not. I'm just saying that you get prayed for by name. And that's important, that God will do these things for us, that God will indeed work this out. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said this, some mercies are not given to us except in answer to infinite prayer, that is, persistent, tireless prayer. They are blessings, he said, which like ripe fruit drop into our hand the moment we touch the bow. But there are others which require you to shake the tree again and again until you make it rock with the vehemence of your exercise. Only then will the fruit fall. So again, brethren, this is why we should be in a constant, non-ceasing attitude of prayer, trusting and knowing that our Father God knows what's best. He knows what's right and good. Now again, as we look there, look at verse number 18. First Thessalonians chapter 5, look at verse number 18. The golden chain continues here with the final foundation of it all. All of this is connected and linked together. All of this produces the things that we would ask the Spirit of God to do. Look at verse 18. In everything, give what? Thanks. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us here in verse number 18. Listen, <laughs> I got a weird mind. That when rejoicing evermore in unceasing prayer get married, <laughs> their first child is thankfulness. Do you understand that? Do you see how they are connected together? When those two get married, their first child bursts forth thankfulness. And this is what Paul is saying. Do you see how they're all tied together? They're all intricately and intimately tied together. All of them. One produces another, which then brings forth that first child of thankfulness. And again, brethren, it is an amazing thing. We can give thanks in everything because we know and trust that God ordains everything. He ordains for us to be here today. He ordains what will happen tomorrow. Is it going to be easy? Is it going to be without sorrow? No, but we can still be thankful to God because sovereign God has indeed ordained it perfectly. We give thanks in everything that comes into our lives because, as Paul said, this is the will of God for you. See, people are always looking outside the Bible. For, I always said this last week. Yeah, yeah, we're looking around. We're looking here. We're looking under here for the will of God. Right, right here, it's simply the will of God is for us to give thanks. Uh, well, we should give thanks for everything, but we notice the terminology in everything, which means that which comes into our lives, that which he has ordained for us to see. Now, there's no one better in all of Scripture, humanly speaking, that can teach us this than Job himself. I want us to turn our Bibles to the book of Job. And I want you to first notice exactly, precisely, how Moses, under the inspiration of God, describes Job. Turn there with me if you would. And he doesn't do it once. He does it twice. He does it three times. We're going to only look at two. But I want you to see. Look at verse number one. 
The Bible says that there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that eschewed evil. Now, if we had time, which we don't this morning, you could go in the text and you can see exactly how Job was upright and he eschewed evil. He went out into the streets and brought in the poor. That was something Jews were supposed to do. He provided for his family. He provided for those who didn't have. He did all these things. This is what's happening. That's why the Bible says that of him. Well, he's made right and perfect because of Christ, but his actions were definitely holy and good. Now it says of him there once. Look at the second time there. Look, if you would, at verse number 8. Look what the Bible says. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and eschewth evil? There it is again twice. Look at that glorious. How would you like to have an eternal description of you like this in Scripture? Think of that for a moment. <laughs> it is a stunning thing to have the Scripture say something like this of you. Not once, not twice, but three times. We're not going to look at the third one. But what I want us to see is we all understand. Remember the series that took place. As Job was there, they came and told him, hey, the house fell in and killed all your children. And as soon as, you know, he wasn't even done speaking. This was in rapid succession. All your cattle are gone. All your stuff's gone. And while he was yet speaking, another came and told him these things. And so we see all of these things, these tragic, what we think are tragic things unfolding in Job's life. And yet we see this in Job. And again, brethren, I often say this. When I grow up, I want to be just like Job. Do I want to experience what he did? Not necessarily. However, it exposed Job for what was deep down inside of him, and I want you to see this. After all of this takes place, I want you to see what Job does. Look at verse number 20. All of this takes place. Look at verse number 20. Then Job arose, rent his mantle, and shaved his head, fell down upon the ground, and what? Worshipped. <laughs> now think about that. I said our whole text has to do with how we worship God. What we think of Him and who we think He is. And here's Job losing it all, everything he had in rapid possession. And what does he do? He worships God. Look at verse 21. And said, Naked I came out of my mother's womb, and naked I shall return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Listen, in all of this, brethren, think of this. Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. How could Job worship? Well, brethren, again, let me just say this. Job understood the lordship of God over him. Amen. That's right. He had a biblical understanding that the Lord God is Lord over him. It's over his circumstances. It's over everything he has. It's in everything. And all he could do is rip his, as, as Jews did, would tear his robe in and, and total sackcloth and sorrow and lay down in the ashes and worship God. Because he understood the lordship of God. And number two, brother, and this is really important, his own love that God had put in him for God. His own love for God. And brethren, this is so important as we consider what Paul is trying to teach us here. In fact, look at Job 23. He says this in the end. Ultimately, in the end, all that took place, he understood the lordship 
of God over him. And this, again, as I say, when I grow up, I'd like to be like him, not necessarily go through what he did, but to be like him and to respond and worship God like he did. See how this exposes us? It exposed me. Do I really trust God? Do I really believe that what is best for me that he will sift through his hands? Yes, we must pray that the Spirit of God would bring us there. Look at what Job says. Verse 10. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth his gold. My foot hath held its steps. His way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandments of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. We looked at that some time back. God's word was more than his necessary food. Now listen, this is how he viewed God. This is how he understood what happened. This is how uh, we pray that God would help us to understand him this way. Look at, but he is in one mind, and who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. Look at verse 14. For he performeth the thing that is what? Appointed for me. And many such things are with him. This is such a glorious thing, brethren, that Job would recognize and understand who God is, that he's Lord over him, that he loved him no matter what. You know, that's the thing. You're, a lot of times you can kind of see this live out in your children, in your family. You know, you can be a rotten scoundrel. I've seen, I had friends, their, their dad was a rotten scoundrel. And you want to know the amazing thing? They still loved him. It's amazing. God is by no means ever unholy or any kind of a rotten scoundrel. What he brings into our lives, brethren, is there because he brings it for our good. How do I know this? I'm glad you asked, and we'll finish with this. Look at Romans chapter 8. Look at Romans chapter 8. We'll just kind of tie this thing up here. Romans chapter 8. Again, this is a Job-like understanding of who God is, what he does, his purposes. Romans chapter 8. And again, we, well, at our conference, we had some good preaching on this verse. I want you to notice something here. Look at verse 28. And I want you to notice two things, two, or three things actually here. God makes a sovereign promise. He adds a sovereign caveat to it. And again, this is so important as we look at this. And then a sovereign stipulation to what he says. Remember now, a sovereign promise, a sovereign caveat, and a sovereign stipulation to what he says. Three things. Look there at verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good. That's a sovereign promise. No matter what comes, no matter what goes, God indeed will work it for our good. He promised us. Like Job, all those things that are appointed for me, he knew and he brought through. So there's a sovereign promise here that everything will work for our good. Look at the sovereign caveat, though. Again, many people think that this is, they, this is not a universal verse. You know, you hear people saying it all the time. Oh, it doesn't work out. No, actually, there's a caveat to it in the text. Look at the second thing. For them that love God. Brethren, can I ask you this morning, or this afternoon now as we finish, 
Does everybody love God? No, you can shake your head no, because not everybody loves God. I just watched a YouTube video with James White and uh, Jeff Durbin here not too long ago, and I can promise you the guy that was threatening, having wanting them to drink, drink antifreeze, did not love God. So therefore, the caveat is one must love God for all things to work for your good. That's the promise. It isn't a universal text. It is very specific. A promise is made to a specific people. And then we notice there, don't we, brethren, look. Here's the sovereign stipulation. To them who are called according to his purpose. So we see again the gloriousness of God. We see here again God doing the action. When the Christian, Paul's writing here and he says to the Christian, we can believe and trust and know that everything will work out for our what? Good. Because he promised because he called us and he saved us. That, that's a glorious thing, brethren, to consider that. Now, let me just close. We've, we've got to finish up. I want to close with a practical truth for all of us and a Holy Ghost-empowered practical application. A truth and an application. I think we've heard some truth. It's an amazing thing. But listen, I like how one pastor said it. God mixes his divine compound, both the bitter and the sweet, the good and the bad, in appropriate proportions so that they always work for our good. Can I say that again? I want to repeat that. I want the Spirit of God to sink this down into it. God mixes with his divine compound, both the bitter and the sweet, the good and the bad, in appropriate portions so that they work together for our good. Listen, he knows just the right amount. Amen? He knows just the right amount of sunshine and rain. He measures it out, these things, with great precision. Think of this, brethren, again. When you consider this in light of Scripture, in light of who God is, His goodness, His precision, His, His, His earnest good for us. It's balanced perfectly. Anybody here had some hard times in life? Oh, yeah. Oh, anybody here had some good times in life? Aren't you thankful that God mixes it? He portions it out. And you know what's more interesting about all this? Is that sometimes when you're going through some bad times, I'm going through some good times, and you know what we do as brothers and sisters in the Lord? That's, that's like I said it last week, we come alongside. We lift. We care for. We are our brother's keeper. That's what we do. That's why he mixes it so perfectly. There's sorrow. But in that sorrow, there's that paradox of rejoicing. What an amazing, stunning thing, isn't it? Now, the practical truth for us. Application, I guess. The graces in our text, I'm going to say it again, do not happen by osmosis. They do not. You know how one is strengthened in these things? When God brings it upon us. It's like I said, you can obviously tell I'm not much of a weightlifter. You look like him when you do that. Like Elijah. But you know what? As we look at these spiritual things, these spiritual exercises, 
you get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and bigger and bigger and stronger as God in his sovereign hand sifts through our lives those things that have been appointed for us. Whether they're good times or bad times, amen, sovereign God has brought them to us. This is what Paul is saying. This is what our text is entailing. Now listen, they don't happen by osmosis, but by holy exercising. Now, brethren, let me just say this. This is going to sound simple, but I want you to hear the action verbs in this. I'm going to quote the Lord Jesus, and I want you to listen. These are the things that are difficult to do. Let each of us trust in our sovereign shepherd. Did you hear that word, trust? That's an action. Let us trust in him, what he is doing. Listen. Let us come. Isn't that what Jesus said? Come unto me, all you who are what? Burdened and heavy laden. Come on. Come to Christ. That, again, that's an action. That's something that the Spirit of God leads us to do. And let us cast all of our cares and all of our burdens upon him. You hear that action? Cast it. Oh, brothers, it sounds easy, but it is not. It is not. Cast those things upon him. And you know what? He will give you rest. That's an action too, a rest. A resting, sitting, laying, trusting. He will give you rest. Come and cast and rest in the one who loves you more than anybody does. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, who will indeed carry your burdens. He will give you rest. Let's trust in him this morning. Let's pray. Father, again, we, we hear these words <laughs> and we can even understand them to a large degree, I think. There's many times we understand things in the scripture and it's, it doesn't really get applied. And so our prayer this morning is that as Paul has laid out this golden chain of worship, man to God. Father, that you would apply it to us. That the Holy Ghost would indeed apply it. Troubles are going to come. Hard times are going to come. They always do. Yet there's some good times as well. But it's in those hard times when we're really stretched and where we really grow. It's easy to praise the Lord when there's money in the bank account and the children are healthy and you're healthy and all is going well. It, it is. It's, 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 it's easy. A lot, I should say it's a lot easier. But when those dark times come, we should indeed rejoice in you because of who you are, because of what you're doing, and because of your great love for us. May we worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask and pray these things now in the name of our Lord.
of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things and we pray that we will indeed be God-centric when we pray, when we understand. We thank you now and pray these things in his name. And All God's people said, amen, amen. All right.